Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to A Girl Like Me Live. This is our 22nd episode, and I'm so excited to be here. Um, A Girl Like Me Live is an interactive live streaming series advancing health and wellness discussions and education among women living with and vulnerable to HIV. So monthly ICC, we'll sit down with different co-hosts to chat about key topics in our community. Today, I have Dr. Teresa Mack, who is a medical editor here at the Well Project. <laughs> and I'm just like, just the moments I've spoken to you, I feel like you are full of so much knowledge that I'm really excited for you to be able to share today. So I'm just going to ask that you in introduce yourself, your affiliations, how did you come to know the Well Project? And we're going to jump right in. Okay. Hi, my name is uh, Teresa Mack. And uh, Cece said uh, something about a wealth of information, but I think that about her. Uh, she did a, a webinar last week and I, I learned a lot of information. And so um, my name is Teresa Mack. I'm a primary care uh, physician uh, here in Harlem, central Harlem. Um, I'm a medical director of the facility and it's all part of uh, Mount Sinai uh, Hospital Icon School of Medicine. And uh, I've been an HIV specialist for, for years and actually been practicing for over 30 years. Whoa, well, it's a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, you know, we're here today to talk about patient provider communication. And this has been a sore spot for me for a while. I think having the opportunity to speak with more providers and to be able to like humanize them instead mm -hmm. of, you know, thinking that they were, or that they are a person that is right all the time or that I have to follow their demands, like just changing that dynamic in that relationship. Myself first has helped me become such a better advocate for myself. Um hearing from your standpoint, how important is that the communication between patients and providers? Oh, uh, Cece, it is huge. I mean, it, you have to have the communication. And one thing that, that you said was, you know, are they always going to be right? They have to listen to you. Okay. Remember, you are the patient, you're the physician. It should be a partnership. Partnership is 50-50. I may not agree. You may not agree. And so we'll just show respect and, and, and try to figure out what is the common uh, ground. But the most important thing, I think that the provider and the um, physician, uh, the provider and the patient relationship is that they have to have a provider that will listen. And that sometimes can be challenging, but providers went into it to help people. So sometimes if you're not getting that listening, you may have to say something uh, uh, to them and not be afraid. You have to be your own advocate, okay? Um, and there was something else that, that uh, you said that I had wanted to uh, address. And I can't remember, but I think it was along the lines 
of, um, you know, the treatments and things that we have to do. We may not agree on how to treat the disease, okay? But we have to come to a, a happy medium. And one of the things that I always uh, have said and I've learned is that I look at guidelines, but I treat the patient. So if a guideline says this is undetectable and then this is U equals U, oh, that's all fine, well, and good. I love it. However, if the patient is undetectable and has a poor quality of life, we have to do some other things so that that patient can have a good quality of life. And I may have to take them off of medicines. So we always talk and say, is it better to have undetectable and you can't do nothing? Your quality of life is terrible. Or is it better to have a, a viral load and you can do things, okay? You can be the mommy, you can work. And so we just have to figure it, figure it out and see how you could still stay health, healthy and protect others. Just the fact that you would consider all those other things that an individual could have going on, like, you know, undetectable is great. I'm undetectable. I'm grateful. But for some people, I also realize that that, will, that just won't be their thing. So, like, you know, treating a whole person is not just about, you know, my viral load. That's right. It is. It, it and again, all of this... Um, I know we're, we're trying to improve provider and patient um, relationships and communications, but the elephant in the room <laughs> is racism. And so we have to be able to be an advocate for that. And I don't mean that a racism that you could work in um, a, a facility and have real nice people. I'm not saying that the racism is the people, it's the policies and things that perpetuate. And that is what we, we uh, need to um, uh, address. There is a question that said, do you take off all medicines? Um, it's an individual uh, approach. Sometimes I have to do that because they're gonna stop anyway. Okay, if you're not feeling good, they're gonna stop anyway. So what you do is you keep them close to you, okay? They're the people I need to see more often than I see Cece, who's un, undetectable. So yes, I have taken them off medicines and I watch them, okay? And I make sure that they are healthy in other ways or that I am preparing them for other ways. I make sure that their vaccinations are up to date that they don't have high glucose. And if they do, I'm treating them for that. If high blood pressure, those, uh, there are other chronic medical illnesses. And then if people, a lot of time they come to me and they say, look, I went to the health food store. This is immune booster. Can I take it? I look at it, take it. Okay. And then they come back and say, yeah, I took it and I didn't feel bad. So then go ahead and take it. I just wasn't trained in immune boosters like that. But I look it, I look it up. And um, again, there's a lot of things. For example, apple cider vinegar. I never even heard of that. Everybody keeps saying it's your grandmother's recipe and all this other stuff. But that stuff works. 
Okay. So, <laughs> I, so we have to do a combination of traditional and what I call is alternative. And just because I wasn't trained in alternative doesn't mean it doesn't work. You are like going in so many amazing directions. You like stopped here at racism. My mouth dropped because you just jumped right in. If we're going to talk about the elephant in the room. Absolutely. Because of those disparities. That was our last episode. Speaking on health disparities and um, health inequities in women living with HIV. And just it, it, it really saddens me. Especially because... I am a black woman and I have experienced most of what I have read in books mm -hmm. and in data. And it's like, yo, it's mm -hmm. really hard. And then to get to the point where you just, as a provider, you just address like other therapies and not suggested them, but you spoke about them. Other therapies, alternative ways of treat. I've never been to a provider who would have entertained that idea. Like mm -hmm. never just to well, hear you know it's it's I'm, I'm telling you it's a partnership so patients have taught me okay and that's why i say the most important um quality i think a physician can have is to listen listen to the um in, entire patient and again i i just am really really passionate about as a physician i have a voice that I can be an advocate for these healthcare uh, disparities because I'm sick and tired of the ones in uh, in HIV. We already know we 12% of the population. We account for over 42% of of the HIV cases, and then we're least likely to be on medicines, least likely to find a place to be linked to care, and then we're more likely to die. That's just HIV. Okay, so we're not even talking about health or heart disease. Every and even COVID, all of them showed us that we have these diversities. I mean, these divisions and these divisions uh, in healthcare disparities are due to the the racism. And there's one statistic I thought that was really um, it was coming to me is that. If you were a, a white person, and wait, I, I want to be able to, to read this, wait a minute, um, that every seven minutes, a black person dies prematurely. And they say, put it another way, is if 200 black people die every day, who wouldn't die if the health of black and white people were equal? That's already telling me it, it's racism. And then to say it, Another way that's different, and this is from Dr. Williams, David Williams, he says that if you are a black person in the United States with a disease, chances are you are receiving worse care than if you were similarly insured, similarly paid, similarly educated, and similarly sick white person. So all of that, I'm like, how in the world can I, you know, you practice uh, in a world that's like this. So when the patient comes to me, I have too much empathy. I'm like, oh my God, okay, mm -hmm. this is happening. Oh, mm -hmm. and, and so I think you have to listen and be empathetic. And so this is not about me, okay? What I want to be able to do is empower the readers to make their doctors 
listen to them and be empathetic. And if they can't do that, or then it's time for them to see another physician. I love all of that. I can think of a time at the beginning of my diagnosis, maybe about like within the first five years, I took myself off of medication and did not feel safe enough to go back and say anything to my provider because I felt like I would be judged. I felt like, you know, that if I'm not doing what you're telling me I need to do, then you're not there for me anymore. Like, so I just felt like I had to keep that secret. So I felt, fell out of care. It wasn't that I stopped yeah. making, taking mm-hmm. medication and that was all. I just stopped going to the doctor and mm-hmm. that that happens to many of us. And if we did have, you know, providers in place or that we've been connected with where we felt safer than maybe like that makes me I wanted to come be one of your patients just then like I need to watch them yes like not that I need to be watched like a baby or anything but it is tailored to what I'm going through with my experiences mm-hmm. there there is no one size fits all right and there's a, it says I, I can't read that comment real quick it says a doubt and then it says won't taking off the medicines multiply the virus? Yes, it will. Here in India, taking off medicines are considered only when a patient is undergoing surgery or has to be on ART all the time. This is something different I'm hearing, would like to know more in detail. As I said, um, that is absolutely correct. However, if you, uh, I'm all for having a patient be undetectable, okay? But if they cannot become undetectable or their quality of life is such that taking the medicines makes them unable to do what they would normally do, then they have to come off of the medicine. And they do it anyway. That's the thing. Okay. So I'm just saying, if you're off of the medicines, I have to follow you more. It means that I may not be able to see you once a month. I may have to see you once a week. I may have to see how you're doing. Are you complaining of a headache? Are you complaining of a cough? You may have to get more antibiotics or other treatments. That's not the way, um, what I'm saying is I, I don't want everybody to go and say, my quality of life is, is, <laughs> is, is poor on these medicines. Dr. Max said I could come off. No, it's a partnership and you have to talk with that person. And the best that we know so far is that if you are undetectable, you're not going to pass it on to anyone. You're not going to seed your other organs and you're going to feel better. But because a lot of these medicines weren't women or other people um, of color weren't in it, we don't know how it acts. And so therefore, I look at a person who cannot tolerate it at all as, well, let's sit down, let's have your quality of life, okay? Which is important. If you don't mind um, having diarrhea every day and vomiting every day, and that's what you're saying you're going through and um, staying on the medicines, okay. But if you tell me your quality of, of life is such that uh, it's unbearable, and actually, Dr. Mack, I stopped it, then I'm watching you. And it a lot of times, um, 
back more so when I was um, first starting out in HIV medicine, mothers would not disclose to their children. And they were the last ones to take care of their own self. Everybody else was taking care, they were taken care of. And they wouldn't disclose. And I would say to them, gosh, if they only knew that you had HIV and can do all of these things, you, you would be able to fight the stigma. You are what I need to fight the stigma. But the stigma was out there. And I'm not saying anything, but I saw what they could do. So if they can't do that on medication, that might not be for them. And I, I was telling Cece uh, once before that um, I had a, a group of patients that didn't want to be on medicines and the guidelines were saying, and at that time it was even like, if your viral load is 25,000 or you want to get it, to, that's when you, you know, you can start them on medicines. And these were the, the, guidelines. And so I would tell the patients, this is the guidelines. And they say, no, I saw people on AZT and they died and I don't want to be on this. And when I take it, it's too much. And again, for that particular AZT, it was true. Okay. The dose was so high and, and people were having side effects and it really wasn't helping the, the disease. And so I listened to people, wait a minute, we have an opportunity to give them a chance to relate that provide the only business they have with you is to take your meds. Well, I didn't hear the last one, and that's all. Any other thing is not their business. Okay, but you you have to um, you, you're going to have to make them. Okay, um, that's to address. I was just talking. I'm sorry. I was talking and the um, mic was off. I was saying that I think there's so much of what's coming up in the comment section right now is um, is cultural as well. There, you know, the differences we have, Joe, not to say that those things mm -hmm. don't experience, um, we don't experience them here, but Joe is speaking from her experience in India. Um, she says that it's more of a class divide than racism. If a person okay. is from below the poverty line, he doesn't have that privilege, just like how you mentioned about Black people. Similarly, there are statistics which shows more mm -hmm. death in poor than in rich. Hence, HIV treatment, as I see, are a luxury available only for the privileged, um, said state of affairs. Absolutely. And then Bose, um, Bose's comment, I think is Nigeria, um, a part of Africa. I know. I, please um, help me in the comments, Bose. I don't want to get it wrong. But we do have the opportunity or even given that chance to relate with our providers, especially in the government hospitals that provide HIV treatment services. Don't the only business they had with you is just take your meds and that's all. Anything else is not their business. And it's all because you have more than 20 patients to a doctor. Okay. Yeah. But that is, but what I'm trying to get you to see is that you may have to educate the doctor in that particular hospital and just say, um, can we do it this way? Um, and there are some other things you may have to make them aware of the social determinants or drivers of your particular health. And yes, I do practice in the United States, um, but there are some things that I really think I'm in a different country. 
And, and so I, you have to look at the, the whole person. And I think what the Indian, the person from India said was, it's, is it a luxury to take the medicine and it's only for the rich? Um, and if you don't take it, I, I'm not sure if she's saying that the rich only take the medicine. So we're, we're taking it. That was her comment. I think she'll um, clarify okay. in the comments. Um, so these are two of our community advisory board members that you're talking to. So there's Joe and Good. Bose. Uh -huh. And mm -hmm. then we had more input from our other members, some questions that they also wanted to pose to you. Uh -huh. um, and I think that Bose's last comment kind of goes into this. So there are more than 20 patients to a doctor. So then somebody else wants to know, how do you get the provider to read the charts before they come into the room? Yeah, I mean, uh, th that's that's huge, okay? I don't know how to get them to read it other than to tell them when you leave that next, the, for the next time, can you just go over so I don't have to, you know, reiterate or we can do more. Let them know that um, that's not, pleasing to you. And it's re-traumatizing also, actually, like having to go back and talk about when was you diagnosed or what medication yeah. you've been on. Da, da, da. It, like it, I've been repeating the same story for the last 14 years. And it takes too much time. And then again, that makes the partnership go further and further away. Okay. So um, I would just tell them point blank. Can you you know, just review my chart for the next time. And next time we come in, I want to discuss some other things. And I think if you're international, I think the Well Project has lots of articles that even if you printed them or pulled them up or the, and just showed them, this is what I want to talk about next time, or can you tell me how this is? Um, the days of having just a doctor come in, um, look at, at your labs, give you your medicines, tell you this is what you take. I'm only interested in that. I'm only interested in, in your side effects. This is a disease that affects the entire body, the whole body. So you've got to be willing to, to listen to the other things and other things that affect that. Um, do you have housing? Do you have water? Do you have clean water? Do you have food? How do you get to these appointments? What's the transportation like? Um, do I need to, would you have more time with me if we had a telehealth or a video or a telephone? Well, if that's the case, I don't need to see your face. Call me on the phone. <laughs> let oh my gosh, you, that you makes such a difference. It, no, wait having to work when you're working hourly and now I'm having to take time off from work to make it to the doctor's office. I've missed, you know, a days of pain. I can't afford it. I can't afford it because my rent is dependent on it. My kids are dependent on it. And this is because I'm living with a diagnosis such as HIV. And then you know, could take you back to beating yourself up again. Like if I wasn't living with HIV, then I wouldn't have to come to these appointments and dip, dip, dip. and just like, just if there were some compassion from the other end that kind of could help curtail that before it even happened. 
Um, when you're talking about this, I'm just thinking <laughs> of one of my last um, excuse me for a minute. So I'll keep talking to you. Okay, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> So one of my last experiences at the provider, I'm trying to find a new provider, one that is closest to where I live. And first, when I made the appointment, it just didn't feel right because I called. She's like, what? Um, I need to make I said I need to make an appointment. She said, what type of appointment? I said medical appointment. What type of medical appointment? <laughs> I have to say HIV appointment. And it just made me feel funny, not for myself, because everybody in my circle knows, but for right. that one and it calls and is not able to be so open. So I mentioned it when I got there and the lady's talking about, well, it's not up to me. Maybe you need to wait until you're in a safer space to make that phone call. We can't determine, you know, your environment when you call. So that's front desk staff at a new provider. Mm -hmm. Then I get in because it's a new provider. I have to do a new intake. So now I am in the provider's office for three hours that day for them to pull all my legs all over again, send me out of the office with a medication I've never taken in my life. And I don't know a lot. I just know that if it's seven of us standing in the room, I'm usually not on the same medication as the majority. Mm -hmm. I, like I had a, a resistance when I got diagnosed. So he put me on a medication or tried to that, a lot of people take and it just didn't feel right. <laughs> like it just, mm -hmm. I, and he wasn't hearing me. He's like, no, no, it's fine. And he did take time to read the drug chart, you know, and everything. But those words, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. I don't know what mm -hmm. any of this means. Mm -hmm. um, but he did take that time, but I still left not feeling like I knew more. Like I didn't feel confident in anything that he told me. So I did not take the medication and I went back to a place where I felt safer. Okay. Um, not necessarily, you know, the quality of care, but I felt safer. Like somebody was going to listen to me. I'd much rather go through that than, you know, just having a provider push on me what they feel like I'm supposed mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. And it's so true. It's the, uh, it's the entire office from front desk to nurses to um, your medical office assistants, they represent us. So, you know, you, you have to be, you have to be really careful. And, and when, when you did the right thing, cause you left, because you actually seemed like you was trying to talk to him and tell him, and it, it wasn't a connect. Okay. Yeah. Um, then, Yes, there are places that people will understand um, you, and that's what you have to do. And you don't settle um, uh, for less. Um, you, it's your body. You got to make people um, respect you, and res and and teach. You're going to teach them about the disease because you have it, okay? And so they have book knowledge. But you're going to have to teach them. And that's why I say is it's a partnership. Um, and slowing down to listen to the patients when hectic. Somebody said 20 patients. I think they mean 20 patients in a day. Yeah, that that's a lot of patients for um, this complex disease. When I first started out, we used to see three patients in the morning, three patients in, in the evening. That was a luxury. You could do everything. 
But now you're seeing 10 in the morning, 10 in the evening. You still got to slow down because that patient does not care who's coming behind them. They want you to address what their concerns are. And that's what you have to do. That's how I feel teaching every time I need to order refill. I don't I don't know what that means. So um, I don't know. I'll try to speak from how I interpret it. I need to order a refill. I don't know. Yeah, ask them what they mean. Um, uh, Aaron, could you elaborate a little bit? But I'm thinking, like, when I go into the provider's office, um, sometimes everyone in the office isn't knowledgeable. So, like, hey, can you just refill my medicine? And then you have to go through this whole thing for, yo, I know what I'm doing. I just need this medication. Can you just... And I'm sure there are probably some procedures that I don't know about, but it just feels so frustrating mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, sorry, Joe. Yeah, no, no, no. And those, that frustration, Cece, you take to when you go in with, with your doctor to say that, you know, when I ask for a refill, I um teaching the rep to take the order. That's oh. what she is that what she's saying? The same thing that you're saying? Okay. So when, again, when you're asking for a refill and then the person that you're asking, it usually should be a nurse. But if it's at a place where it's not a designated HIV center um, or, Oh, thank you, Olivia. Okay. Um, that's not a, a designated HIV cent, uh, center. You may, you may have to educate the doctor to say, when we call for these prescriptions, um, how do we do it? And uh, Olivia, can you put up the comment again? Yeah. Okay. So, um, when you're teaching the, you're saying that when you order, I just want to get this correct. You need a medication. You call in to the doctor's office and you're having to teach them what, because they should know what, what you're on. And if you're at a place that does other things other than HIV, you don't want them talking about your medications or anything that that should be in a, a more secure place so that no one um, is listening. Can you ask Olivia to put up her comment again? Because she said it was something. So I'm going to read all of Aaron's all together. Okay. All of Aaron's together goes, that's how I feel. Teaching every time I need to order a refill. Teaching the rep taking the order. And then further clarification was to the pharmacy. So, I mean, can you see that disconnect there though? Like the pharmacy, the pharmacy isn't always as knowledgeable about HIV specifically. So I'm not sure why they clarification would need to happen then or i've had it happen where like yo this medication is really really important like i really really need this it can't just be like that i've had to do that and i know that that is extremely frustrating mm -hmm. um, I, yeah i'm not i'm not sure um 
But when when you get down to a week of your last pills, that's when you want to put them in. Not that it's the last day and trying to explain to somebody why it's so important. Okay. Um, and maybe they can give more than, than one month. Um, so because that, if you've got 20 people uh, on a day and all 20 of them say, that are calling in and saying, I need my medicine today because I'm on my last pill. Okay. <laughs> you will do it, but you may not get to it in, in a, a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. So I think to improve patient provider communication, your medications, you shouldn't be having to educate the doctor, shouldn't be having to educate the nurse. But if you are, you're going to do it for the one time so that the next time they can they listen to you and they you can get your medicines on time um absolutely i want to move on to heather's comment because this is really good really, really okay good. um there's so much to say about language justice i'm sorry where did it go there it goes there's so much to say about the importance of language justice when having patient provider conversations as well. The difference between the use of the word infected whether than, rather than living with HIV can completely destroy a safe space to talk about quality of life and treatment issues. Yes. I, I agree with that. And that is why, um, just because I went to medical school or just because doctors went to medical school, that was the terminology. And so you have to change and update yourself. Okay. So why should we say that they're infected? You're living with a disease. I don't say I'm infected with diabetes or I'm infected with high blood pressure. You have that. So yes, the language is very, very important and we are changing it. And I can really say with, um, well Project and uh, other um, uh, HIV-specific organizations, they make that determination that, no, we don't say this anymore, or this is a person with this. And you, you have to be very mindful of that. And so either we, everybody who is almost like if everybody teaches uh, or sees HIV patients, they ought to be able to... Um, access the well projects <laughs> article so you can see what's going on or you you join um hiv mna uh, ma which is hiv medical association or the academy of hiv medicine which does the education and that's in the states i don't know about um international but i know that in those two organizations you can still join thank you um, I think that we may have addressed this a little bit, but what have you noticed that's different in working with people living with HIV versus other chronic illnesses? Nothing. Nothing. It's just a different illness. Okay. Um, the one, the only other thing I can say that is different. I feel that people who are living with HIV 
are much stronger and take more of an interest uh, in their particular uh, disease. And they're more active or advocates. So I have more people or patients that I do things with on the advocacy side than I do for a diabetic patient. Mm -hmm. And the issues are the same. There may be new medications that come out that would be better. And then they, they're angry. The diabetic is angry or I should say the person living with diabetes is angry <laughs> that they don't have this. And I would say a lot of times, well, you should be like people who live with HIV. You got to advocate. And um, it just, I, I think that's, that's really the difference. There is to me. Um, and since I see both that I don't see uh, a, a difference. Maybe in the past, I might have said that a person living with HIV was was depressed more, but that's not true anymore. Life expectancy is better. You you know, there used to be a look um, that if you had HIV, that's that's not true anymore. And actually, I'm finding more depression in people who are not living with, with HIV. And the people who are living with HIV are able to, to get the, the support that they need. Um, at least um, I would say in the United States, it's more available. You might have to navigate a little bit, but we, I think we do try to adjust that. I don't see uh, a difference. In my case, Celeste Watkins Hayes, she um she talks about that when you say the support of for people living with HIV, she calls it the HIV safety net. And who, I have who does this? I'm sorry, Doctor Celeste Watkins Hayes. She's okay. a sociologist of some sort. Okay. I've um spoken with her a few times, but the 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 safety net that. Uh, many people living with HIV are able to develop or create, you know, just based merely because of living with HIV. Mm -hmm. So I can say that my safety net, net is composed of, you know, my friends, other advocates, my family, um, my work family. And those things are what makes it so much easier for me to go in and advocate. I know that I have, you know, resources behind me that I'm going and not just speaking up for myself, but I'm making it, you know, the next person that comes behind me visit, hopefully easier because someone has, you know, brought these things up and made a big deal sometimes about it. The, the breastfeeding one where I really had to advocate for myself and, mm -hmm. You know, they're supposed to be holding a training at this facility at the end of the year, like a grand okay. round, which I think mm -hmm. is really exciting. But that just came based off of, you know, the provider not necessarily hearing my wants and desires and trying to push me into a certain decision and me not agreeing with it and coming back and following it up on it. 
I'm not sure if many people know, but you know, of the grievance process, I've done it the wrong way and I've done it the right way before mm -hmm. when I've been unhappy with the care I've received at places. Um, so just doing it the right way this time, I actually got people that listened to what my complaint was and what, and they were able to come up with a plan to respond to make sure you know that my voice was being heard and that some changes were made. Now, always, um, I will always encourage people to do the same in their own lives. It can be hard though. Those white coats are really intimidating. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> I, I agree. I I agree. Um, and and so much so, it's not just intimidating um, for you, but it's a, sometimes it's intimidating for for the patients. Even they come in, and take your blood pressure. Here they come, it's sky high, and they say, "Is that white coat?" Um, and then you sit down and you talk and you have a conversation and you do the blood pressure at at the end. Um, and there's even some talk of. Um, people not wearing white coats okay and uh so it, i think it's it's a it's a partnership i wear scrubs okay um really? i may or may not wear a, a white coat if i know that the white coat is 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 going to offset somebody but you know um yeah it it can be intimidating but you look at the person in the white coat and you don't want that person to be intimidating um to you i one of the best visits that i had to a provider what they provided it was for my child and we saw a hispanic male doctor uh -huh. and my son had a rash and the doctor like google photos of what the rash could have been and sent them to me. But in his Google search, he put brown skin behind the rash. I'm like, yo. Yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. It made like it just made me feel seen. It made me feel like he understood. It made me feel mm -hmm. like we could be on a couple um that we could have been on to something. Like it was great. We yeah, have some no. questions coming through, though. So that's so important that they you have to know the culture that you're in, and and do why would you you know put up something that doesn't represent? Um, and and so that's that's good. What what are some of the questions? Okay, are they? They should be popping up on the screen. We. Oh, what is a reasonable amount of time to wait for my blood to be drawn? Do you mean in the office at that that particular time, or I'll answer them both. Um, our guidelines are changing as to how often you should have uh, blood drawn. So if you're undetectable, um, you can go uh, three, six, or nine months, depending on all the others. But this question, I think, is saying a reasonable time to wait for my blood to be drawn at the office and at, it might be after the visit. Um, is is that right, Aaron? So you see a doctor and, and you're waiting more than an hour or two to have blood drawn? Or is she asking if I'm undetectable or not undetectable, how long do I have to wait for blood tests? I'm not sure that question okay. was uh, you know because the uh, guidelines uh, do change um, and 
if I have a patient that's been undetectable for, for years, I might just do it every every six months. And then I have patients who uh, I'm doing it, uh, you know, once a month, and then I'm doing it also a, a quarter. So I think it, it, just, it just depends. Um, however, I don't think you need to be spending all day in the doctor's office. But then again, I, this is international, so I don't want to be stepping on <laughs> another country's toes. <laughs> and saying, I've done it right here in America, though. Right here in America, I don't hate to sit in the doctor's office all day. Like, I ain't got no. nothing to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. No. Uh, yeah, I mean, you have to be respectful i think both ways of people's time okay um i know I, I i have three kids and i had a gynecologist that um every time i went it was a four hour wait but the gynecologist wait. was just a four hour wait if my appointment was at one o'clock i knew i wasn't going to get in until four or five okay and i had trained under this particular gynecologist so I really thought he was all that. But I did speak up. I said, look, you got to do something. I know, you, you know, there are other people in here that can do what you do. We all, all kind of like you, <laughs> but something has to be done. And so what his solution was, which I thought was good after so many of us spoke up, he would call us and say, um, your appointment's for one, but really I'm, I'm far behind. Please don't come in until such and such. And sometimes it would be closer to five o'clock. I appreciated that. Um, and But it, I always would be angry. And I was a physician. How dare you think I'm going to take off at one for an appointment and then you don't see me till, till five. And I think at one point um, he got the message because I was a pregnant. And I was waiting four hours. And then when I came in and my blood pressure was through the roof. And they were like, oh, my gosh, what happened? What happened? What did she do? And so <laughs> he came up with a solution for that for the pregnant people. But then when you weren't pregnant, it was, okay, we will, we will call you. Do not come in. We'll call you. White Coat did elevate. They hooked me up and left the room. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> It's serious. I like that one. Okay. Excellent. You know, and then I, you know, different dynamics of it are being diagnosed in the South, you know, in the rural South. I always have to make that distinction. A white man walking into the room with a white coat on, like I just felt like I had no voice. Like Aww. Aww. so navigating my healthcare in a way now that like, oh, I can actually say stuff is so new for me. So um, this is what I was going to ask. What do you believe is the best method to be when introducing HIV education and stigma reduction to non-STD STI facilities? Some of us see our other doctors more than we do our HIV docs. Uh, and what's the, uh, what's the question, Cece? She specifically was asking what do you believe is the best method to be when introducing HIV and education, HIV education and stigma reduction to non-STD facilities? What's the best way? Yes. 
the best method to give them the information. So I'm I can't think of what um what examples like she would have been thinking of, but is it like brochures? Is it like trainings? How do we get our other providers quit up with where many of our HIV providers may be? Okay. All right. So um okay, you it may take a little bit of work, but this is where your advocacy comes in. You may have to write a letter, talk to the administrator, talk to the chief medical director and, and say, we're all coming here and we notice that this is a, an issue. How can we you know, work on so that it changes? It may be you have to be the person to do it. Um, and sometimes I've noticed that when you do things like this, it's sometimes better to do it in a, organiz a group that has the same type of focus so that it's not just one person. But if you're not privy to that, then you have to be um, that one person. And I think um, the, the best way is expressing how, how you feel so that each time you go there, that it's not an issue. And if you're going to more than one place, you would have to do the same thing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're getting all these questions answered. I don't think we, you know, many of us don't have access to a provider like this to just be able to shoot questions to. So thank you. Um, Joe's question, I think this is the one that she once highlighted. So she says, clarification, in India, government hospitals do give free medicines, but there are cases of stockouts. At times, patients go without medicines, which can take a month or two. But for the rich, they easily get medic medicines as they pay for it, no matter how expensive it is. Hence, they don't suffer stockouts, which might result in drug resistance. This, okay. This, Olivia Ford, that's what I meant to say when I mentioned that art is a luxury and a privilege for the rich. Okay. Okay. I, I, I agree with that. And I think that that's a, a true statement. Um, is there some type of advocacy that has to be done there? But this is where we come in to equity. <laughs> okay that we have to have we have to have resources so that everyone can get the treatment that they need and yes i do agree that india has the generics and they were the ones that kind of told us that we when we were first starting we didn't realize as the the provider that the medications were so expensive and that was the limiting factor. And then <laughs> India came out with these generic, we're like, what? You, and so, yeah, that that's terrible. Okay. That we, we, that's not equitable. Okay. And so, yeah, we have to, I'm not saying I'm the expert. I'm just saying I, that we have to have equity and, it may just be each one teach one or each one do one. Um, but that that's that's sad 
that um, if you have money, you're you're getting better care. Yes, yes, it's very sad. I, people right here in this country, I I'm in a group where many of the women are located down south, and sometimes they do not have medication. Like, mm-hmm. wow. And I've experienced that myself, but I've been back here for so long that I can't even fathom not having access to the medications that I need to continue to live my life and, you know, the way that mm-hmm. I've been living. It, it's disheartening. Um, let's see, we done talked about so much. Let's see. How can we get providers to listen without assumption and hear us in regards to new information about our diagnosis, like PrEP and breastfeed, and then U equals U? They can't gatekeep. And at this point, they have to tell patients the truth. And with this, they will give the patient ease as they won't suffer thinking they will pass HIV to their partner and will motivate them to have adherence. Okay. So, again... Um, how do you get, I think the question is, how do you get providers to be up to date, um, on uh, information? So again, if you went somewhere and that wasn't the case, then you, you tell them the next time I come or to the next patient, this is, um, this is what you need to do. Okay. I don't, I think people are sometimes scared to say to, to a doctor or to tell them how dissatisfied um, they are. But I think that that's how we have to do. If they're not going to um, provide the respect to me of learning about my disease or trying to help me understand all of warning signs um, that something may be amiss and when I seek medical treatment, or I feel that they um, don't care, then you tell them, give them a chance to uh, change. Um, and again, all of this is, it boils down to the importance of patient communication. Um, even just, you have to, let me see. You have to be able to speak up and sometimes teach the person that they have a bias, that they may not have known that they had. Um, And so that may be a way to get them to address all of your concerns and to look at you differently so that when the next person comes in, I got to address all of their concerns. Okay, we're coming up to the end. I think this probably will be one of our last um, last comments, last two. So we have this one that says, these people in Senate and Congress tell me that health is a privilege. No, it's a human right. I absolutely, absolutely agree. I agree with that. 
and Aaron here. Aaron had me tripping out. So they say, I believe in helping prevent HIV with PrEP, but when people get free PrEP and my private insurance co-pays are more than my mortgage, I'm very discouraged and bitter, honestly. Give pills to people who don't even have it over giving it to people that are living with it. I used to be on trials in the 90s, so I feel like I should get a lifetime supply for free. Yeah, I I kind of I kind of agree with you. Um, yes, that that's foul. That that is true. And why should it be so expensive that you can't? It comes down to health equity, okay? Um, and I think we. I agree with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> that I, I definitely uh, agree with you. Um, and we see it here also where if we're trying to write for PrEP, uh, if their insurance doesn't cover it, it's, it's really so expensive. And I'm trying to prevent it um, in this uh, community. But if I can't, they don't have the the resources. And I think I see it more with PEP because I'm always telling them how you do it. And you come here with PEP and then I write the prescription and they come out, that's a thousand dollars, Dr. Mack. And then mm -hmm. I'm like, run to this emergency room. Yeah. <laughs> you you yeah. kind of have to know where, okay, yeah, go to this. Because by the time I get on the phone, try to talk to, you know, a farmer to give me a coupon so they can get it. Just go to somewhere that already has a grant. But that's not, you want to end the epidemic and you make it difficult for people who have a job? Are you trying to tell me that people shouldn't have a job so they can get medicines? How backwards is that? So when we talk about quality of life. Yes. Quality. I always go back to the quality of life. That, that's what's so important to me. So you you have definitely even displayed through our conversation today your patience, your you know, your intensive listening and all of it. Like I would I would feel so honored to be able to have a provider who operates in the way that you've shown today. Um this is the end of this episode. I think thank everyone you. so much for being here with us today. Join us next month for our next episode, episode that's going to be 23, I think. Um, and just keep an eye out for what the topic is going to be. Once again, thank you for joining us, and I hope you all have a good day. And thank you for having me. You're welcome.